What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for all the saints and the ain'ts. It's me, it's your boy, your favorite nephew, your fake rich gay uncle, the one true archbishop of this house of worship and the Holy Mother shut your mouth, the most reverend Brandon Thomas Maxwell. And I'm the Right Reverend Karen Teresa Ricks, the stated clerk, teaching elder, and pastor here at the Temple for All the Saints and the Aints. But you can call me Katie. I'm the cream in the middle of your favorite vegan treat, Oreos, that is, and the token white woman here to speak on behalf of every white woman in the world. I, I didn't write that. Yeah, every single one. We yeah. expect it. <laughs> I just want y'all to know, Katie said she's the right reverend. Brandon said he's the most reverend. I am the very right, most holy reverend. The most potent. Y'all, y'all better hear me today. Uh, I, I am the archbishop of praise, the holy potentate. Yes, I am all of that. Potentate. Reverend Pastor Bishop Samuel Lee White III. Mm, I say. You got to say the third. The third. Today we're celebrating our 20th. That's not your line. My bad. <laughs> Why you always got this takeover spirit? Today we're celebrating our 25th church anniversary, also known as the 25th episode. It is going to be a good time. We've got questions from our listeners from all around the world, and we cannot wait to share them with you. And that'll be today's word of pod for the people of pod. Thanks, Thanks be to the pod. Wait, you said from all around the world. We got a listener in South Africa. Go ahead, go ahead. Childish. But first, we've got a few church announcements for the good of the congregation. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. So whatever time you listen, and I covered you. First, giving honor to God, who is the head of my life. Yes, 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 yes. Who is the author and the finisher of my faith? Huh? Huh? Katie don't know nothing about that. Who is the bright and morning star, the beautiful rose of Sharon? Mm -mm. Huh? Who my grandmama called Jehovah because the Lord is? Huh? Well. And also giving honor to the pastor, the pulpit guests, the deacons, trustees, friends, family members, everybody in the house of the Lord. It is good to be here once again. I don't know if y'all know about Crystal Rucker. Y'all know about Crystal Rucker? I know about that. I don't like her voice. I hope she ain't listening, but yes, I know about Crystal. You so rude. Crystal Rucker is a gospel singer and she sings everywhere and her voice is very distinct. But anytime she starts to get up somewhere, she always likes to tell folks, nah, I told y'all I'm saved, right? I, I told y'all I'm saved. <laughs> and she gives a whole like background in faith. I'm going to start doing that whenever I go somewhere. And I told you I'm saved, right? Mm. I was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee under the pastorate of H. Bruce Maxwell at the Lake mm-hmm, Providence mm-hmm, Missionary mm-hmm, Baptist mm-hmm, Church. Mm-hmm. Gave my life to the Lord. Let me look up Lake Providence. Let me go oh, look and Lord. see what I can find. Our first announcement is about Governor Andrew Cuomo. Last Tuesday, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo finally announced that he will resign from office following multiple accusations of sexual harassment and inappropriate conduct from a number of women, including former staffers and one current staffers. I have to say, I did not think that Andrew was going down. Andrew was like, I'm about to be the governor until I die. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. It's interesting because I saw an article almost immediately after he announced his resignation that New York is weighing a ban on male governors. 
<laughs> For those who don't remember, uh, I think Elliot Spitzer, uh, who was a former governor of New York, also got caught in this scandal with sex workers and all kind of different things. And then here comes Andrew Cuomo. It's just crazy. So, yeah, maybe we need to not allow men to have political power. I mean, what's intriguing to me here is kind of twofold. One, like I think Andrew Cuomo perfectly highlights the tensions that most of us carry in our bodies. This is probably the governor who most effectively handled the pandemic in its earliest days and very quickly, very astutely implemented safety precautions that helps New York stop being the clusterfuck that it was in the earliest stages of the pandemic. And then you also have all of these sexual harassment allegations from multiple women that are part of his legacy. So, like, I don't make any excuses for those who engage in harassing behaviors, discriminatory behaviors. I think that people need to be held accountable for those actions. And I just am interested in this tension that exists between the ways that we've celebrated him for the last 18 months, or at least earlier in the last 18 months, and the ways that his name has been appropriately, perhaps, dragged through the mud as a result of all these allegations. But I'm also intrigued by the fact that Andrew Cuomo couldn't last through a governorship, but Donald Trump lasted through a presidency with equally challenging allegations. Man. He, he not only lasted through a presidency, he was voted into the presidency with not just allegations. Right. And don't sleep on him because he might at some point be voted back into the presidency. Right. With these allegations, which if you if you ask me, they're all abhorrent. Yeah. But I actually think Trump's was worse than Cuomo's. I mean, he was recorded saying that he grabs women by the pussy. Right. Right. And then like said that he did it. Well, no, I'm just saying I'm not sure you can make it a competition with sexual harassment because it's all bad. But yes, I understand what you're saying in terms of the fact that he admitted to it, bragged about it, and then still was elected. Right. Might as well let Bill Clinton uh, and, and Bill Cosby and all the bills. <laughs> Bring all the sex offenders back. But to the Democrats, you can't be the party that tries to hold people accountable mm-hmm. and then have a double standard for your own elected officials. That's right. The Republicans have been on brand the whole time. We're going to do all this. We're going to grab pussies. We're going to sexually harass people. And we're going to let sex offenders be on the Supreme Court. It's our brand. What do you mean? How did we elect them? What I love is that the same black mahogany sister, Letitia James, who is throwing down against the NRA, who is throwing down against Trump, also is throwing down against Andrew Cuomo and these allegations. Do it, sis. And she is bringing the fire to all these white men. Mm -hmm. So, hey, I'm bringing it. This is what a politician with integrity does. You're not like party first. You're for the law first. You're for country first, not in America first way. I I think we need to keep a watch on this name. I think Letitia James is going to be a force to be reckoned with. Agreed. So our next announcement comes to us from the Bishop of Prayer and Praise, as he likes to call himself, the Reverend Samuel Lee White III. So this may be a little less serious uh, than some of our previous announcements, but to me, this is a big deal. Bishop Paul S. Morton, nationally renowned recording artist and pastor, has retired from pastoring the congregation, changing a generation here in Atlanta, Georgia. I know you lying. I ain't lying. Now, he retired from being the bishop of Full Gospel Baptist Fellowship some years ago. I remember that because uh, Joseph Warren Walker the third. I don't know who that is, but it sounded like a preacher's name. He's the new uh, presiding bishop. He sounded like a bishop. Bishop Joseph Warren Walker the third. <laughs> Sam isn't really the third. He just added it on so he could be a bishop someday. <laughs> I added it on so I could sound like a bishop. 
the third. <laughs> so I'm gonna start being Brandon T. Maxwell the third. <laughs> so for folks who don't know, Bishop Paulus Morton actually ended up in Atlanta after Hurricane Katrina and establishing changing a generation uh, when his church moved here in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. You tell him the nice version. It's what happened. No, not quite. Tell us what happened. He left all those people in New Orleans at Greater St. Stephen's <laughs> after the levees broke and transitioned to Atlanta, Georgia and <laughs> left his wife to pastor Greater St. Stephen's. Well, his wife was pastoring that church and she's done a wonderful job. Wonderful job. While he was here pastoring away from the broken <laughs> levis. Bishop, if you're listening, I don't blame you. <laughs> it's time to go. The Lord sent a sign. You got to go. You truly are a bishop and not a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> This is actually really surprising to me. Paul S. Morton just came back on the radar for me a few weeks ago when he started hollering at that little boy who walked past him when he was doing the live stream. Do y'all remember? Katie, I know you didn't see any of this. Well, I've heard about this story, though, I think. I haven't seen it, but I think I've just heard about it. But tell me some more in case I forgot. I actually heard about it from you, Brandon. So tell me a little more about what happened. Katie, I love you because you that white person that's got all the black friends. He'd be like, I think I heard about this. My other black friend was telling me about this just the other day. (laughs) (laughs) So he was preaching and, you know, everybody's live streaming now. And as he's either winding down the sermon or beginning the sermon, a musician walks behind the camera and he turns around and he's like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, where are you going? Where are you going? We are all growing in the word here at Changing a Generation. I want you to stop doing this. You need to sit sit through my sermon. So when I saw that, I was like, I think Paul has gotten a little bit senile. So in some ways, maybe I'm not actually surprised. I think one of the deacons probably pulled his coattails and said, okay, Paul, it's time, sir. It's time. Wow. I do think there was a come to Jesus meeting and they was like, Bishop, what's going on? His children probably said, Dad, you can't be doing stuff we done told you. You was tripping. So I don't know. Maybe he got pushed out. But I don't think so. I think he's just old and ready to go. Well, I did see online that it is his 70th birthday and his retirement from being the pastor of Changing a Generation coincided with his 70th birthday. How do y'all do it in the white church? Are there 70-year-old Presbyterian pastors who need to sit down? Oh, yes. They're all over the place. That's why there aren't <laughs> jobs for people because a 70 plus year old pastors are still in the positions or they take interim jobs and they don't really do interim work. They're not really in a place to shake up a congregation. So yes, we have a ton of trouble with folks who need to retire and enjoy God's creation and <laughs> not be doing ministry in the church. Well, I mean, well, at least he is retiring because I mean, some people would look at Bishop Morton and say, wow, he still looks great. He still seems full of energy, young, you know, like he, he may be 70, but you know, he's faring better than some some 70 year olds, right? And I know some people who are in the pulpit, like in their 80s, can barely walk, you know, and they just won't go away. But you know, at, at least he is. Maybe this is a good model of what it means to transition with grace and finesse, right? I mean, well, that'll only be answered post-retirement. But I think how he handled his retirement as the presiding bishop of the Full Gospel Baptist Church International Fellowship or whatever they call it, I think that was very tactful and very well done because you have to bear in mind that Paul S. Morton was not only the presiding bishop, but also the founding bishop Founding bishop, yep. Like he founded that denomination in 92, separating himself from the National Baptist and becoming this more, I guess, charismatic or Pentecostal version of Baptist. Mm -hmm. And so when he did that, that showed, I think, a lot of 
courage on his part and the fact that he's at 70 years old saying, I'm going to take my seat and I'm about to retire. Like that coincides with what his parishioners do. I love it. Like sit down Mm -hmm. when you get to the age of retirement, collect your social security and get out the way. And I don't think he has any interest in continuing to like do that work. If anything, you continue to be like the bishop. I feel like if you're going to continue to do anything in your old age, that's what you do. Not continue to want to be the pastor because that's a bit taxing. But I think he don't want to do any of it. I think he's ready to chill. Well, Bishop Morton, we wish you well in your retirement and we look forward to hearing those gospel recording albums that you're going to produce now that you have all this time on your hands. All right. Our next announcement comes from the Reverend Karen Teresa Ricks. Before she comes, I would... Should you say arrives before she arrives? Oh, because you're being nasty? (laughs) Just carry on. Leave it all in. Before she... (laughs) I think I missed something. Come. Oh, wow. (laughs) Before she... Before she uh, speaks, I would like to note that in addition to being the pastor in the temple for all the ain'ts, Katie also serves as the president <laughs> for the following ministries. The I am a white woman. I like to create my own anxiety ministry. I hate you. The unlearning white supremacy ministry. The perfume ministry because we need the white folks to put on perfume so they don't smell like the wet dogs when they get <laughs> wet ministry. Brandon, you can't put that on there. You can't tell white people they smell like wet dogs. Is that a secret? Oh, my God. Katie, don't you know that you smell like dog when you get wet? I have heard you say this, yes. Brandon, you've told Katie this? <laughs> I like my friends to know because if you try to come up to me wet, I'm going to have a face. I would rather you just not approach me at all if you wet and white. When I used to swim, if I came over and it was not a work day, I would just stay away from and say, I haven't showered yet. So, And then I would make my choice. I think that's the courtesy that white folks should offer all black people. If you are wet, at least tell us that you are soaking wet and have not showered so we can opt into smelling an animal. To my white friends who are listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> Please welcome her as she comes, as she arrives, as she speaks. Thank you. The Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for All the Saints and Aints would like to remind you that you must be vaccinated to participate in worship. Uh Uh-huh. Furthermore, you must show proof of vaccination to enter the sanctuary, the temple, and the shrine. Well, yes. We have hired an expert team of ushers and greeters who are highly— You said it wrong. Mm -mm. You get you in the black church, Urshus. Urshers. 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 It's Urshers. Bless her heart. We have hired an expert team of Urshers and greeters. <laughs> She's so confused. Who are highly trained in detecting those fake vaccination cards, so don't even try it. Now, while we were the first to require proof of vaccination, the United States military has finally caught on. Now, they are going to require all military members to get vaccines at the latest by September 15th. The military hasn't had that be mandatory yet because they typically don't require vaccines that are only for emergency use. Mm Mm-hmm. The FDA is about to fully approve the Pfizer vaccination, maybe by Labor Day. However, the military is way concerned about this Delta variant. And so it is possible that they will make it a requirement before then. Uh, Because, I mean, the whole point of vaccines is to get them to die out. And so the Delta variant is different because it's just continuing to mutate. So they need to step up and have their own vaccination cards. And all of this was brought to you by my Navy doctor brother. Katie, I'm glad that you brought that announcement. Speaking of the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for All Saints and Aints, there are a lot of brick and mortar churches who are 
still wrestling with this notion of not just getting vaccinated, but wearing masks. Mm -hmm. There was literally, I should have had this pulled up. Just last week, it was reported that Florida Church suffered six deaths within the span of a week and a half. All from COVID. Wow. Six all from COVID. Get this. Four of the deaths were people who were under the age of 35 and who all were healthy. Hmm. Every day I'm seeing more articles or news stories about individuals who have died or on the brink of death um, who are saying, oh, I wish I had gotten the vaccine. I wish I had gotten vaccinated. And there are still these arguments. The governor of Florida is actually threatening to withhold the salaries of school board members if they implement mask policies. Yep. As of last week, we were back up to 100,000 new cases a day. Mm. It is insane that that we have these folks playing this level of politics and that we have still congregations and church leaders. You still hear some pastors saying, you know, don't come here if you're going to wear a mask. We're, not, we're a maskless congregation and we believe. And I just told these folks, I had to tell them, you know, faith alone is not a defense against COVID. You will die in Christ. You think that your faith is going to keep you, we will bury you and say ashes to ashes and dust to dust in Christ you died of COVID. So go get vaccinated, please. It's kind of ridiculous to think that God didn't actually create scientists who create ideas or figure out ideas about the world. So here in Georgia, we have already passed the peak of the second wave of cases and percent positivity. So we are like skyrocketing. And this week, I've already received then another letter from the school about a COVID contact. And these are school systems where the masks are already required. I cannot even believe what's happening in those states that are like banning mask mandates. So it's bad. If you just look at the state of Arkansas, where the governor imposed legislation that would further politicize mask wearing, like now that the COVID-19 rates are increasing there, he's having a hard time convincing folks to get vaccinated because he's already politicized the issue. Yep. So they're trying to deploy other strategies to convince folks to be vaccinated. And now we even have like the Republican Party in the state of Florida and other states on the southern border of the United States trying to say that the increase in COVID-19 rates is due to immigration. Shit. So now we're not only going to politicize mask wearing, we're going to make COVID-19 attach that to immigration, which is another one of our platforms, right? our racist platforms by which we convince white folks to vote for us. So like for me, why are you just talking about white folks? What do you mean? Because all the Republicans are white folks except some really crazy ass people. Did you not listen to the episode a few weeks ago where we talked about white folks versus everybody? White people ain't did nothing to you. First of all, second of all, well, I'm just kidding. But the crazy thing is, Brandon, about all of this is that literally just a few months ago, we had the experts saying, don't rush to take off these masks. Yep. We had the experts saying, we need to reach certain vaccination levels. If we don't, we're going to see a huge wave. We're going to see a huge rise in cases. We're going to see variants come in and it's going to be deadly and it's going to be dangerous. And we're there. And now We've got folks pointing to the border saying it's because of the immigrants. Uh, some folks will actually believe this rhetoric, which is so sad and infuriating at the same time. 
if the military does mandate the COVID-19 vaccine for all military personnel, that will be a great next step. I mean, because Biden really doesn't have any tools at his disposal based on how the United States government is set up. And so states do have all the power. And what I think I've seen Biden do is utilizing like the bully pulpit, which we should talk about in a future episode to really say to folks, hey, businesses, you should require vaccines. Private organizations. Maxine. <laughs> did you say vaccines? He did. <laughs> it's a combination of masks and vaccines. Oh, Max. I like that. I like that. Let's reclaim that word. I'm reclaiming my time and my word. But encouraging businesses and private entities to require masks in their context, because that's really the only sort of lever that Biden can pull. But we've already seen in countries that do mandate vaccines for certain constituencies that the vaccine rates increase. So like France now requires vaccinations for healthcare workers and then pandemic passes in order to enter all restaurants and for domestic travel. That passed at the end of July. And we see in other countries that are doing similar things, requiring vaccinations for at-risk populations really does increase the rate at which people are being vaccinated. So all this to say, I hope that the U.S. government continues down this path of figuring out other strategic levers to pull to increase our vaccination rates. The folks are like so against pandemic passes or vaccine passports. And they're like, you know, absolutely not. I can't believe this is possible. Aren't these the same people who are saying you have to have like a driver's license to go vote? You must have some sort of form of ID. Mm. You must have some form of, you know what I'm saying? And we're saying, what about the homeless? What about the people? What about the elderly who can't get out and go? You must have, there's nothing wrong with ensuring fair and safe elections. Mm -hmm. And we, we must have integrity in our elections. But you you don't want to keep people from dying. So I just, I'm done with white people. Those are the same people who are walking down the street now with my body, my choice, even though that's like a pro-choice thing. I'm like, do you do you not get this? But the reality is that there's all kinds of vaccines that have been mandated. I still have my childhood vaccine passport. Wow. World War II. Right. Because we moved from place to place with the military, but smallpox was eliminated. Polio was mostly eliminated. Measles, these are all nationally mandated vaccines that have cut down or ended pandemics. And they just come back again when anti-vaxxers put the burden on other people. I also still remember as a child changing schools, having to update immunization records and things that we did not have, having to go and get those shots. Mm -hmm. My wife, who's from South Africa, when we got married and she came over and became a permanent resident, had to have certain immunizations to be here. As a matter of fact, if you travel to certain countries mm -hmm. and want to return to the U.S., the CDC will tell you there are certain immunizations that you have to have before you can go. Yeah. And so the very fact that people are acting like this, it just baffles me. I don't understand it. I'm done because I just will say bad things about stupid people. So, <laughs> so y'all mask up, vax up. Please, please, please use whatever tools at your disposal to encourage those around you to be vaccinated. We're going to keep on saying that here. We're going to keep on encouraging people to mask up as well. Masking and vaccine does help. And we can get out of this thing more quickly if we all take part in those two basic practices. All right. And our last announcement is 
It's our 25th episode, y'all. Yay. I think this means we get silver gifts, right? Isn't that the 25th wedding anniversary? It is. So if you all would like to send us silver things, please uh, send an email to holyshitatheolabmedia.com and I will send you the address to which you can send those silver things to us. We will gladly receive all silver gifts. Yes, all silver gifts and melt them down to make me a bishop's ring. I was going to ask for a little pinky ring. We each want a pinky ring. I don't want a pinky ring. That's so funny. The pinky ring is a power symbol like in the world today. But back in the day, it was a sign that you were a lesbian. And that's how you could tell if somebody else was one. It was a little confusing when you ran into people who had power pinky rings. It was a little more dangerous to hit on them. But I didn't hit on anybody. I changed my mind. I want a toe ring. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody's going to be clear you're not a lesbian. I feel like we need to have a church anniversary celebration. Did y'all do church anniversary celebrations, Katie? Uh, not, I don't think in the way that you are going to talk about them. We would have a church birthday on Pentecost. The hell is that? You know what Pentecost is. Quit it. I know. So you was just celebrating the birth of the church in general. Oh, man, that's no fun. Every once in a while, churches would do something. But no, no, no. It's homecoming. Oh, what you know about homecoming? We don't do that. But I know other churches that have done homecoming, and I assume that happens on the anniversary of the church. So, Or is it different? Well, no, that's a separate holiday. No, two different things. Two different things. There's homecoming Sunday. There's the pastoral anniversary. And because if you're black, you got to add the I, the pastoral yes. anniversary. Mm-hmm. And then there's the church anniversary. And then if you really, really, really in the South End Church, you got the old landmark Sunday. Oh, we call it big meeting. Oh, yeah, the big tent meeting. But big meeting was like homecoming. And then you got fall revival and spring revival as well. Those are all separate occasions. Do y'all have Christmas and Easter Christians in your church or submarine Christians? Or do they show up for all of these? Of course. Well, people come back for homecoming Sunday because you got to come back. A lot of people think Christmas and Easter are the biggest Sundays in most churches. But back in the country, Baptist black church that I was in, it was homecoming, a.k.a. Big Meeting. Come on, Big Meeting. Everybody came home for for Big Meeting. Everybody came back. No matter matter how far you had gone, everybody came back. But now the church anniversary, Katie, is not Pentecost Sunday. It's actually the date that your church was established and founded in your community. Yes. Yes. I don't care about the whole right. church. The biggest choir sings. The choir typically marches in from the back. They march in. Hey, what you know about marching in? <laughs> I know about marching in. We had to stop marching in because when the church, the church I was raised in, we moved to a bigger facility and people just got tired marching down that aisle. And it took forever. Marching in would take at least 15 minutes to get everybody in the choir stand. And then, you know, Sister so-and-so was like stuck halfway down the aisle with her remote control fan because she got too hot in her choir robe walking down the aisle in her one-inch heels. (laughs) So I guess when you process in, it's a little more lively than the Presbyterians who just walk and try to stay up with each other. Oh, we practice that rock, honey. I don't know what you're talking about. And we get the song to match the rock. And the music gonna play for about two minutes with you just rocking at the back door before you start processing. Uh-huh. Because it's a build-up. It's a climax. And that music gonna play everybody swaying at that back door. And then you start marching with that sway and it's gonna take about 15 minutes for you to get to the choir stand. And they're gonna play like, Come Thou Almighty King, help us thy name to sing or something like that. Come Thou Almighty King. So whatever the uh, podcast equivalent of having a 25th church anniversary is, that's what we're doing today. And we can't march in, but if we could, we would be doing that. If anybody wants to choreograph a holy shit pod, march in, 
No, Katie, not you. Not me. <laughs> so let me rephrase this invitation. If anyone who has rhythm, which will likely be a person of color, but not all people of color, if anyone who has the gift of dance, we, we need a leader of the liturgical dance ministry to choreograph the choirs, rock in, march in. Oh, wait, that's not Bishop X either? They, they would report to him. Oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For the 50th episode, we want to teach everybody a new processional and we need everybody to learn the choreography, but we first need someone to agree to choreograph the choir's march in for the 50th episode. All right, people of Pod, that concludes today's church announcements. We want to give as much time as possible to respond to those questions, shout outs, and comments from you. So with that, let's take a quick break and get right into the word of Pod for the people of Pod. Thanks Thanks be to Pod. Pod. Hey y'all, Piper Jones here. I just wanted to hop on and verbally tell you guys how much I love you guys. You know I'm a huge fan of the podcast. You guys answered a question that I submitted a while back about anti-intellectualism and I have listened to that episode more times than I could count actually. And you shouted me out before so I was like let me just like tell them from my own mouth how much I love them and how much this podcast has meant to me and in my spiritual walk and growth and deconstruction of things and it's been some healing moments and new perspective and all that stuff i just wanted to say you know without gushing but i think you guys are amazing and the work that you're doing is so important okay a couple things one y'all leave katie alone two i just really want to learn how to speak like a bishop even when i'm having regular regular conversations so i'm gonna keep on listening to sam for that um and brandon you, I love you and all of your song choices. You keep on running for Jesus. All right. Love y'all. <laughs> all right. It is finally time for the moment that Sam, Katie, and I have been waiting for. Today's Word of Pod features questions from you all, our listeners. So many of you have written in and sent us voicemails using that purple hexagon on our homepage at theolabmedia.com. And so we're not going to be able to include every single question in today's episode, but we're going to include as many as possible. As you know, we're committed to trying to keep this thing within 60 minutes or so. We may go a little bit over today because there are so many good questions. And if you were raised in a black church that had pastor's anniversary, church anniversary, homecoming Sunday, or any of those special black church holidays, you know that the church service is going to run a little bit long on anniversary Sunday. So this is the 25th episode anniversary, and we may run a little bit long. And that's all right. Don't you walk out while we teaching. We're all here growing in the word, as Paul S. Morton said. If you don't hear your question today, know that it is coming in a future episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you for responding to the call to sending questions. We are so, so, so excited about this. We're probably going to make this into a more regular segment in each episode in the weeks to come. Keep sending in your questions. Keep sending in your comments. Keep sending in your shout outs. We truly love hearing from you. And that is one of the things that gets us going and makes us happy. There's good stuff happening here at the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for All Saints and Aints. Our first question gets to the heart of this podcast. It comes from Nicole out of Nashville, Tennessee. See Nash Vegas, baby. What are your thoughts on ministers that use curse words in the pulpit? White woman, what you got? Well, shit, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what the hell to say about that. Well, you're not in the pulpit right now. (laughs) Who who said? Right, we do in ministry all the time. We in the church of holy shit in the temple of all saints and aints. That's right. 
You ain't the Archbishop of nothing anymore, Samuel. You can't take my title. God gave it. God gave it to me. I'm like Paul. I did not get this edict from you. Mm, I got it from God. My God. So I actually don't mind preachers who cuss in the pulpit. That's mostly because I do it. So I'm a manuscript preacher. I literally have to have everything written down or... I will swear for the entirety of the sermon. Cuss words are my favorite words, and I'm trying to become more intentional about how I use them and when I use them because I want there to be a precision in my language. And sometimes in the sermon, the only word that's appropriate is a cuss word. So one time I preached an entire sermon, it was Pentecost Sunday, and the sermon's title was WTF. I didn't say what the fuck in the sermon, but I just put WTF. And the whole point was Pentecost was a WTF moment in scripture. And I talked about how we in the 21st century need to figure out what it means for churches and congregations to have so much passion, so much life, so much energy that people have no choice but to look at us in a good way and say WTF. Right now, people are turning around looking at y'all like WTF, why are you preaching against vaccinations? Our culture and our world has to inform what we preach. (laughs) And if people are texting and talking about WTH, WTF, LMFAO, that's the language of the people. And if I'm sitting up here not using the language of the people, the sermon is pointless. I will also say that Paul cusses. I've said this before on the po- on this podcast or on the mourner's bench, but the scripture that um, I forget what the verse, the chapter and verse in the book are, but Paul asked the question, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? My Greek professor in undergrad said, what the Greek says is hell no. Paul uses the equivalent of hell no mm-hmm. in response to shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? So for me, cuss words are 21st century constructions. We make the words good and bad. We name them as such. And what's the difference between me saying damn and dang, hell and heck? You, you bring up Paul and you actually have Greek professors who give you, you know, the basis for this interpretation. Right. But when I read scripture, see how angry Jesus was in the temple at the temple leaders being so comfortable after they have beguiled the people. Because this, I just preached this, and this is the read that I got from this. And Jesus was so angry because he says, my house should be house, called a house of prayer. You turn it into a den of thieves. He, he quotes the Old Testament. Um, and he basically says, you, you temple leaders are so comfortable here in God's house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer, after you've beguiled the people. And Jesus says, so I'm going to tear your shit up. Mm. You won't be comfortable here. I won't, I won't allow you to be comfortable in God's house. And so Jesus begins to tell you, and you better believe there was some equivalence to the English word motherfuckers when Jesus was tearing that shit up. I believe Jesus would say, you motherfuckers is not going to be comfortable up in here after you have hoodwinked the people and torn the community apart. Now you come up in here and count your money. Hell no. And he, he, he braided some cords together and started chasing them. You got to be a mad motherfucker. When you take your time to braid some cords together <laughs> to chase some people out of the temple, you ain't finna tell me Jesus ain't say some unsavory words. Number two, when I went to South Africa and was dating my wife, Jamie, we were sitting in the house and her six-year-old niece, I think she dropped something. And she was like, oh, shit. And I'm like looking around. I think I've said this on one of our podcasts. I'm like, y'all gonna let the child cuss? And I, and I think it, the weight of that, I really realized like these words though, these words only mean something in the, in the cultural context that they have been socially constructed to mean something. And so you are sending people to hell. Well, I say you, but you know, there are people out here who are really sending people to hell. I'm using air quotes because if, you know, I don't want to suffer the fate of Carlton Pearson, but uh, we are, we are literally sending people to hell for words that only 
have was a profane meaning in our cultural context. They actually, because we make them profane, they actually mean nothing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Lastly, after Mike Brown had been killed, I was in seminary sitting in a classroom listening to a preacher from Ferguson, Missouri, who said um, people in in the wake of his death afterwards. The religious people and the church people cared more about profane words than they did the profane conditions that some people were living in. And it's amazing. And I I tested this theory. And so I made a post, me and my Baptist preaching self, on Facebook, a short quote that talked about conditions and it had one word in it and I think it was shit or damn, I don't know. And people who had never curl their fingertips to type on social media about injustice or spoke about it from the pulpit were up in arms about my use of the word shit. But they never said anything about any of the conditions that people are living in. And I was like, I don't care about this shit no more. You know, like if you offended, you know, Jesus said many shall be offended by me. So shit, get offended. I don't care. I don't care. So... I, I like cussing now and, and I don't do it. I, I, the last time I preached, I asked the pastor, can I curse from the pulpit? They said, well, there are children here, so maybe not. And I was like, well, shit, ain't y'all supposed to be progressive? You know, but, but <laughs> so I'll try to, I'll try to color within the lines sometime, but I, you know, cut, say what you want to say. God yeah. don't care about the words you use. God don't give a damn about the words you use. God don't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> God, God speak God. That's so good. God, God, God speak God. God speak God. God speak God. You think God, you think you said damn and God said, oh, I can't believe he said damn. God speak God. God might not even know what the hell you talking about. Like when my, like when I'm walking around the house and my dog said, I'll be like, what the fuck you just like, I can't believe you just said that shit. <laughs> I don't like you and I love it. Like that's the parallel. God don't care about the shit you saying. <laughs> While I don't think that, um, that, that God care. While I agree that God doesn't care. I mean, if you're cussing out in the, wherever you are in the world and you're working, then you may as well just cuss in the church. Like there's no difference when you, you walk into something. I do think all the world is an altar. Exactly. I think, I think you have to be intentional about it. And I think that's what you said, Brandon. I mean, um, I think there are, it depends on, it is contextual. It depends on where you are. Um, there are some people who won't hear what you're saying if you're cussing like every other word. But I think having um, intentional words sprinkled through are fine. I'm probably not going to find myself preaching in a congregation where you can't cuss anymore. So, period. I mean, if you invite me to preach, you know who I am. Right. I'm at the point now where I don't ask permission to swear. If you have listened to this podcast, if you've ever talked to me, if you've <laughs> ever heard me preach before, I'm and I don't do it to like stir up emotions or to try to I I'm not trying to be incendiary or inflammatory by cussing. I'm just like, you know, if you invite me to preach, you know me. And I had a parent one time in a church where I swore in the sermon. I was actually pastoring in this church and she kind of came to me and said, well, we didn't have the kids here. And I said, it's my job to preach. It's your job to parent. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want your child to cuss, then you need to have a conversation with your child about cussing. But, do, but has your child heard you cuss? Has your child heard you watching a TV program where they're swearing? Does your child have a cell phone? Because they probably text and cuss words. If all of those things are true, then don't come at me because I swore in a sermon. Mm-hmm. It was a choice and I made it. Well, they said that about... Uh... 
about things that you'll talk about too. I mean, some parents will say, well, you can't talk about school shootings or you can't talk about the um, war. You can't talk about the ways that we continue to shoot black people in the streets. Like these are, these are things that people, parents don't want their kids to hear. But I'm like, um, like I'm talking with my child about that. She needs to know about that. If the church is a part of your life, then that's precisely where you need to hear about it. So I think those are the things that people need to be honest with parents about. Like, this is what we do. As Reverend Seku, who I mentioned earlier, said, this month, the month between right now and this time last month in July, 212,000 people were coming across our southern border because of the conditions in their home countries. In the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of record-setting heat, they're coming through the desert. That's profane. What's profane is the nativism and the racism that says they're illegal and they need to go back to where they come from. That is profane. Mm -hmm. If you want to have a conversation with your child about lifestyle or, or or habits or mindsets or things that are unsavory or profane things, that's what you should point to. You should say, uh, you know, some people might look at you crazy if you say damn or shit, but that's what's really profane. What's really profane is that some people, because of the color of their skin, are having to fight barriers to go and cast the ballot, even though they used to have to drink a separate water fountain. Like you, let's, let's really break this down, right? Um, because it's, it's, a, it's about a whole lot more than words. It's about how you've been socialized to believe what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And for some reason, um, the words that are coming. What scripture is it, Brandon? I know you said you feel churchy today. Um, that Jesus said it's not really what what goes in the body that defiles it; it's what comes out. And he's not necessarily talking about the words that you say, but it's these dispositions and these beliefs that you can otherize people, that you can oppress people, that you can you know just totally make people invisible in this world. And Jesus was saying that that's the problem. The problem isn't, you know, the food you eat or the one or two words that you say or this or that. You know, it's, 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 the, it's, it's these other ideas that you have held so tightly to that are destroying other human beings that God has created. What you should do to free your mind is go read scripture and read cussing into it. So, and I'm being serious because I think for me, when I am preparing a sermon, I like to play with scripture. And where there are gaps, I like to fill those with my own human human experience. So yes. like what Sam yes. was doing earlier, like what do you think Jesus said when he walked into that temple and there was all the money changers and, and, and gamblers? He was like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> I, gee, I could hear Jesus saying, I will be damned. Now y'all motherfuckers know y'all cry. Like mm-hmm. what would you do if somebody had come into your house and mm-hmm. turned it into a three ring circus while you were gone? Bitch, I know you lying. That's what I'm going to say when I walk in. What's crazy about that scripture is it says that, that like a day before Jesus went and just looked around. You, can you imagine your mama coming in and y'all doing some crazy shit in the house and she just stop and just look and then leave? Listen. You know, she done drove around the neighborhood cussing in the car the whole, these motherfuckers lost their old when I get back to this house. I'm going to whoop their ass. And Jesus came back and did just 
that. And look, if mama did that, mom, mom and daddy, they say they're going on a vacation. You throw a house party and you know you ain't supposed to have nobody at the house. Somebody about to get an ass whooping is what they're going to say when they come in there. So read scripture with a little bit of play in your heart and in your mind and free yourself from that baggage of being concerned about whether or not the pastor is cussing. Well, all right. I didn't think that was going to stir up that much conversation. We starting off strong here. Thanks for the question, Nicole from Nashville. We really do appreciate it. Our next one comes from Elisa out of ATL. Shout it. Hi, I'm Elisa. I live in the Atlanta area and I was hoping um, that I could hear you guys talk about the parent who has now filed a federal um, suit against Maryland Elementary School here in Atlanta um, because she was petitioning or wanting her child to be in a specific classroom or with a different teacher than she was assigned and discovered that the principal um, segregates the classrooms based on race. So um, the parent was not allowed to have her student transfer classes um, because the principal explained that she would be isolated in that classroom because it was a white classroom. Um, this is a black principal in Atlanta in an Atlanta elementary school um, who segregating classrooms what do you guys think about that i mean are they equal i mean i know they're separate <laughs> but are they equal uh we got we got precedent for this no, I'm, I'm kidding i'm kidding so the principal's name is sharon briscoe i'm not certain i know exactly how i feel about this i am actually probably of two minds but what do y'all think first I am too. When white people separate black people, I'm mad as hell. <laughs> when black people separate black people, I be like, yeah, I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It feels like an act of like self-preservation. It feels like right. there's a part of, like, I want to talk to Sharon. I'm projecting onto Sharon. Let me be honest. I'm definitely projecting because I haven't read enough to know about this, but it feels like an act of communal care. Black students learned best and more effectively and more comprehensively during segregation. Are you saying we should go back? When our schools were separated and we taught our own and it was black folks who lived in the community who may have eaten at your house on a Sunday afternoon or who may have worshipped with you and stepped on your heel, your good shoes wow. when they were shouting in church, mm -hmm. when it was that communal dynamic and your teacher got their hair cut by your father who was the barber in the community, when there was that sort of intentionality around educational institutions and black communities, I think black students fared better. Of course. It wasn't until white folks begrudgingly started teaching us and, and and people need to understand that integration was a means to an end. Right. Black people's schools, black people's books, black people's resources were all inferior to those that were in white schools. The desks, the the facilities, the books, everything um, was so much better. And so I joked about Plessy versus Ferguson, but Plessy versus Ferguson said these things can be separate as long as they are equal, but they weren't. They were never equal. Right. And so black people realized the only way that we're going to gain equality is through integration. Yeah. Let us be in your school. Let us learn from the same books. Let us sit in the same desk. However, um, if black people had the access to those resources, they would have continued to educate their own kids with their own people in their own communities and not have to deal with the systemic racism that we still dealing with every day. Yep. So just just so folks know integration was a means to an end. Black people weren't just up in arms about integration. Yep. It would be totally different if it were a white principal, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, it would be. We'd be out in front of the school right now. Right now. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
my experience is as a woman, you learn better in a classroom that's all girls. So um, I can imagine and see how if you have equal or better education and you have black students in one classroom and white students in another, I'm also ambivalent about it. I think for me, the question that I have is, what was your communication plan? Mm -hmm. In the same way that you have institutions that have like courses wherein everything is taught in both Spanish and English and a parent opts into that, if this was an intentional thing on the part of Sharon Briscoe, who's the principal, then Kyla Posey, who's the parent, should have had that communicated to her so that she could parent her child, Mm -hmm. right? I think parents are essential components of education. And if you are doing something good in the school system that may fly in the face of the values that a parent is espousing at home, then you're actually not achieving anything by doing that at home. The parents have to be involved. And so my follow-up question for Principal Briscoe is, once the parents become aware of what has happened or what is happening, if a parent wants to opt into a racially integrated classroom, is there a path for that to occur? Right. But I would have a lot of questions though, right? If my kids were going there and I find out they're in a Black-only classroom, I want to know why, right? Are the Black kids being bullied? Are they being picked on? Are the white, is there some type of issue that you haven't made, like Brandon is saying, communications, you haven't made me aware of as a parent? Have you done some study that determines that at this particular school, this is a better learning model? Can you produce that information? Like, give me all of those pieces so that as a parent, I can make an informed decision. Even if I can jail with you about needing that care, I got an issue with what's going on because I feel like something's not being communicated to me. And I don't like that. And Sam, to that point, I think for me, part of the reason that I initially am like, oh, I think I'm kind of cool with this is because I had so many other assumptions about what I would do if I were a principal in that scenario. And I do think that it would require engagement from the parents of both the black and the white children. Right. And there would need to be some education that's occurring so that the children aren't learning things implicitly. Right. Like one of the things that I learned when I was doing some education courses in seminary is there's the explicit curriculum, the things that we intentionally are saying, hey, this is what we want you to learn. Two plus two equals four. We teach you that and we want you to get that. But if we're learning addition in first grade, and we're omitting subtraction, there's an implicit curriculum that's functional as well. And that is subtraction is not important right now. Mm-hmm. We're only focusing on addition. Right. And then there's also the null curriculum, the things that I'm not teaching you at all. You're still learning something by osmosis, even if it's not my attempt to teach it to you. So I think there has to be a true engagement of all parties involved in order to make this work effectively. And I'm not certain based on the limited information that we have that this is occurring at Mary Lynn Elementary School. So, Elisa, thank you for the question. We appreciate it. You taught us something, and this is why we love to hear from you all. Elisa and others, anytime you have a question, go ahead and send it our way because we would love to stay in the know about what's happening in the world and in our city. All right, that seems like a good spot for a break. Let's take a moment to decenter whiteness and heteronormativity. When we come back, we've got three more listener questions to engage today. One of them will serve as the launch pad for our invitation. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The Holy Ship Pod is brought to you by Theolab Media. Theolab Media exists to transform how humans engage faith, spirituality, culture, and the world around them through podcasts and other digital media. If you are enjoying what you hear here on this podcast, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Theolab Media and become a monthly contributor. Hey, 
Holy shit, Todd and Theolab Media. I'm all excited about this 25th edition that's coming up. But what I also just realized, and I'm really excited about it, it's happy one-year anniversary, Theolab Media. All right. The next question comes from Preston out of Georgia. Hey, good morning, y'all. Preston here. And I just had a question. If the core tenet of the law fulfilled by Jesus Christ is to love your neighbor, why is the Christian almost always at war with the, quote, other? And the second part of my question is, does loving your neighbor mean you should go get a vaccine? And finally, uh, how do we deal with people and love folks like anti-vaxxers or whoever um, who hate and have bitterness for your thoughts, ideas, and opinions? Well, that's my piece. Looking forward to hearing from y'all. Bye. Preston, thank you so much for the question. That is evidence that my mother is not the only Bible reading person who listens to this podcast. I read my Bible. He came in with the word of God, y'all. He said, the core tenet of the law. I read my Bible every time I have to preach. (laughs) (laughs) So what y'all got for that? I'm going to let the white lady go first. I'm going to center whiteness. (laughs) Well, I, I mean, I don't have a fix for it. I think the reality is that Christians make bad choices. A friend of mine used to say that you can't judge Christ by the Christians. And the Christians in our world are not loving their neighbor. They're not looking out for other people. That includes with with not getting vaccines on time or wearing your masks. I would argue that Christians are not following the way of Christ, period. Period. No, I agree with you, Katie. I think um, I think most people don't—it's not just that they're not following the way of Christ. I think people have a very convoluted idea of what the way of Christ is and what it means to be a Christian. The brand of Christianity that is popular in America, I think, is one of the furthest away from the brand of community that Christ espoused. And so the the reality is most people, they're on the other, completely opposite side of an understanding of what community looks like, of what care for the other, care for the neighbor looks like. And so, you know, I think it's difficult to hold them to that. I won't say it's difficult to hold them to that standard, but it assumes that they actually know what that is. I don't know why, but I'm feeling churchy today and I keep going to the word of God. And so I want to go to the word and I'm going to read from the King James Version. Yes, that's the only version, the only real version. Listen, (laughs) some scripture just sounds better in the King James. When my grandmother died, um, the pastor who was leading the worship service said, I'm going to read Psalm 23 from the original language, the King James Version. (laughs) Wow. I bet you almost fell out. I bet you was like, what? The hell? It was a Presbyterian <laughs> church, too. Was he joking? Was he joking? I, no, I almost... Was he joking? Yes. He, well, I mean, he was joking that it wasn't the original text. Correct, but, correct. So correct. my mom and I were laughing hysterically, but he did read it from King James. Anyone, go ahead. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he, because the King James is hella sexist, and so is every other translation, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
ye that work iniquity. You workers of iniquity. It's only good in the King James. Ha! So I read that today because Preston, I think the reality is that there are a lot of people who profess to be doing works in Jesus's name. What we now have are a lot of modern day zealots, of modern day Pharisees, modern day Sadducees, folks who are following some sort of legal code that they created for themselves. It ain't in the word. It ain't in the book. And they're all hiding under the label Christian. But really what it is, is Christianity has become a code word for hating people. Well, I can hate you. I can oppress you if I disguise it as love and say it's what Jesus wants me to do. And so really what people are looking for inside of Christianity is a way to be hateful and not be criticized for it. So that's the response from the three of us to part one of your question. Part two of your question was related to a vaccine. If you love your neighbor, should you be vaccinated? I say yes, but shit, I say if you love yourself, you should be vaccinated. Like it's it's common damn sense, you know, like, but if you love your neighbor, yes, you should be vaccinated. It, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't say much on this without getting upset, Preston. I'm with Sam. I can't talk about masking up or getting vaccines without getting angry at people who choose otherwise. So absolutely, that is; those are the things that protect ourselves and protect others. Masking isn't about protecting yourself at all. It's protecting the people around you. And for the entirety of this pandemic, people have made choices. Christians have made choices as well to not care about their neighbors. And so I question their commitment to discipleship, but i that's probably, that's not my job. But the short answer is you should get a vaccination and you should wear a mask to care about other people. Something else came up for me as y'all were responding. I think it's time out for us trying to figure out what our faith says about everything. I do not think people become Christian and go to church to actually be transformed by the renewing of their mind. They go to be affirmed in what they already believe. And all they want to hear is the same shit over and over and over again. So the moment that anyone starts, what should we be doing as Christians? What they're really trying to say is, how does what we've already said about this or something similar in the past apply to this moment today? And so go out beyond your faith for a moment and ask the question, what does science say about this? (laughs) What is the scientific perspective and opinion? Why are we having a theological argument about whether or not you should be vaccinated or masked? Why? I don't disagree with you. And I think that some people view everything through the lens of their faith. And so if that is the case, I would say I think it's important that those folks engage science as a creation of God as well. So it can be looked at as such. So Preston, if you love your neighbor, should you get vaccinated? If you need to frame that theologically, the answer is yes. And if you don't frame it theologically... The answer answer is is yes. yes. (laughs) All right. This next one comes from Nefertiti out of Georgia. Georgia, rise up. How do y'all feel about pastors using the pulpit to discourage vaccinations? Nefertiti, I think is, for me, is sad and it's infuriating. It smacks of ignorance and selfishness and stupidity. It's reckless. It's inconsiderate. And a lot of people are going to believe it because some of those religious leaders have so much influence over the people who hear them and follow them and they trust them. You know, this is akin to someone using a professional office, a doctor or someone to really abuse or misuse the trust of other people all in the name of God. And so that's why it's infuriating because people are really dying out here. Because they believed that their pastor said that this is 
some type of trick of the enemy or the vaccine is some something sent from the underworld or, you know, all of these things. And there are folks who are going to hear that and are going to say, you know, all I need is Jesus and Jesus alone. And like I recently said, you're going to die in Christ. You de- yes, you're going to die. We're going to have your funeral. You're going to die in Christ because you believe in what this pastor is saying. Like, like it, it infuriates me. I think for me, I'm just sitting here like, do you need any more evidence that these folks ain't actually about Jesus? Scripture is silent on this topic. Period. Scripture does not talk about vaccinations. They did not have them in this way. So it's silent. So anybody who goes to scripture and preaches about whether or not you should be vaccinated is making an interpretive move. Now, I can do that with the best of them. I can cherry pick scriptures to try to help inform the public opinion about whether or not you should be vaccinated. But all I'm doing is cherry picking and I'm not necessarily saying what the Lord said. I'm not saying what scripture said. I am making an interpretive move. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So why would anyone stand in a pulpit and preach something that could lead someone to die? Are you trying to get them to hurry up and be the dead in Christ that rise first? I'm going to just be real. If you are attending one of those congregations, you should stop. I was talking to my mom about a story that I was told when I was young about this, this guy, this old man who had lived in his house and there had been a prediction of rains and floods coming. And like before the floods came, a person came by and said, hey, you need to leave. The flood is coming. He said, no, the Lord going to take care of me all the days of my life. And then the rain started and the water started rising and the folks came by in a canoe and they said, come on, get in. We we need to go. And he said, nope, nope, nope. God promised me he's going to take care of me. Uh, And the water kept rising. He had to move up to the rooftop. And they they came by on a boat. Said, man, you need to come on. He said, nope, I trust in the Lord. Eventually, they had to bring a helicopter. They said, this is your last chance. The fool drowned. He drowned. Got to heaven. He said, Lord, you said you was going to take care of me. God said, I sent you a damn canoe, a boat, and a helicopter. And like literally, that's where we are right now. Like, how do you believe in God and, and God's infinite power? God has given us science and the marvel of modern medicine, and then you reject it because God is going to provide for you. That's the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my life, and the pastors are peddling it. The pastors are, and the politicians are, and all of them are people who have already gotten the vaccine, so they're protected, and that maybe the pastors aren't. But I know the politicians are all protected. They've already got their vaccines. They were first in line, and they're, they're kind of riling up the— their followers. So it is, it's ridiculous. There have been a lot of funerals for pastors during this pandemic. If you need any proof that you, that you can have all the faith that you can muster and still die from COVID, then just look at how many pastors have died who believed in the Lord's power to keep them from getting sick. So, Nefertiti, we think that pastors who are preaching against vaccinations are stupid and that they should probably be defrocked and sat down. I declare the pulpit is vacant. As we get ready to take our seats, and if you're black and Baptist, you know what that means. That means we got one more point for real. It might be a long point, but it's one more point. But it's the church anniversary, so you already knew what this was going to (laughs) be. So, as we come to the end of this episode, we have one more question coming from Elizabeth Gocher out of North Carolina. I want to take this question and I want to use it to frame our invitation because for today's invitation, I do want to invite all of our listeners into an intentional conversation about whiteness and what it means to move beyond being a white ally, a white advocate, or a white savior into being a white person who positions themselves in the places that allow them to form authentic relationships with people of color. 
Good morning, good people. It's Elizabeth Gocher here, your favorite listener from Durham, North Carolina, a longtime supporter. And I have a question. Where is the place between being an ally and an advocate and being white savior? I think I'm stepping out and feeling like this is a relationship potentially where that's an okay question to ask. I know you're authentic and you'll be honest. And I wonder how we have that conversation on a broader scale. I still enjoy you every week. Still love having that 7 a.m. drive time on Monday morning so that I get half my holy shit pot on my 30-minute drive to work. And then I get half on the way home and love it when that happens. Hope you guys are doing good. Hope your week is looking up um, or at least looking forward instead of looking down. Take care. Talk to you later. Bye. So, Elizabeth, we're going to do a couple of things here to help you out. Number one, I want you to know that Katie is going to respond to your primary question because Katie is here for that purpose, to respond to all the white questions. Uh, so that Sam and I don't have to exert our energy if we don't feel like it to, to respond to those things. That's not to say that we're not going to respond, but Katie's going to be the first line of defense on that one. Second thing, Elizabeth is also a listener who sent me Not y'all, but me, because I'm her favorite. (laughs) Sent me a mug that says, I got 99 problems. And white supremacists, capitalists, heteronormative patriarchy is all of them. (laughs) It is my new favorite mug. And so, Elizabeth, there are some things I'm going to coach you on once Katie provides a response to your primary question. And it's not just for you, Elizabeth, but it's to all white listeners who have the courage to engage this podcast. I'm going to coach y'all through a few things. And then Sam might say something or not. Sam might not have any capacity for whiteness today, but that's his business. Uh, Katie, help Elizabeth out. I have tentativeness with the word ally anyway in terms of LGBTQ stuff, so I'm not a big fan of that. However, I think that the ally advocate that you might be referring to, Elizabeth, comes about through deep relationship with people of color, black folks, brown folks. And through those relationships, your vision of what the world looks like is opened. The white savior would come in as go, oh, this is what white people do. We need to help these people do it the way we do. And I think what it means to be an ally is to say, let me listen, let me understand, let me be fully present and engage fully, and then you know what it means to speak out or keep your mouth shut advocate or talk to white people more than thinking you're fixing black and brown people. So I think that that made sense and that was a helpful invitation, right? So develop a relationship first, right? Right. First, you got to develop a relationship with somebody so that it doesn't feel as if, hey, I'm taxing you as a black human, as a queer human, as a whatever kind of human that's not me to teach me something. Right. I will say that I think that's difficult if you don't position yourself in a situation where you are the minority as a white person or there's more than just your token black friend. You can't just say... I need a black friend, so let me go out and find one, and then I can be an ally. I'm not sure it can be formed any way other than long, sustained relationships. Right. And I guess the question that I would say to push your point a little bit further, Katie, is what is the thing that scares you? For any white person that's trying to figure out how they become an ally or an advocate, one, back to your point, Katie, I would say get rid of the words ally and advocate. Mm -hmm. Those words are not bad in and of themselves. So I'm not saying don't use them. That language can be helpful to communicate your intentions. But what is the situation that enables you to become a friend Mm -hmm. of a person of color, of a black person, of a queer person, so that you develop a longstanding relationship that's transformative and you're not always positioning yourself as someone who has a task? 
Yeah. Yep. So many white folks engage race conversations from a task-oriented perspective. It's not about how many boxes you can check, but it actually is the relationship that's transformative. And know that we might not feel like being your friend. Just because you want to engage in that does not mean that black folks are required to say, oh, this white woman's trying to do work or this white man's trying to do work. So let me now be their friend and tax myself to help them. No, 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 no. So you might have to try multiple times. And then the second thing that I was going to say is ask yourself the question, what is the thing that scares the shit out of me? When you were talking about becoming immersed Mm -hmm. in a different culture, Mm -hmm. I think that that's scary for a lot of white folks. So what is that sort of immersive experience that would scare you, that would require you to see your therapist 37 times, that would require you to up your medication, that would require you to join a different religious community, that would require something of you that changes your life? Whatever that thing that you're terrified of, do that. Because that's going to be the most transformative thing. And if that thing is going to be a part of a black congregation, knowing that to be in a black church that has a different liturgy than you, that has a different way of expressing their gratitude or their thanks or their praise than you, if that's the scariest thing that you can think of, that will be the situation in which you probably go into it having the least amount of power. Hmm. And it may be something that you can't even imagine yourself, but that's what I would suggest you do. I think the work that we have to practice, by we, I mean white folks, is the work of decentering whiteness. I think power and privilege comes so natural to white folks that that's probably one of the most difficult things that they would do, especially since unconsciously different sectors of the community center whiteness even when they don't realize that they're centering whiteness. And they will look mm-hmm. to the white person or to white folks because you, either you have the most education or you have the most experience or you traveled all over the world and all of this stuff. But know that even if those things are true, your experience is not the most valuable one in the room. Mm-hmm. Your knowledge is not the most valuable knowledge in the room. Be teachable. decenter whiteness. Learn how to be present in a way that doesn't put yourself, your experience, your stuff at the center. And it might not be you that's doing it. You might be sitting there saying, I don't want to be at the center. And, you know, and people are trying to pull on you and say, well, you know, you've worked in the education system 30 years. Yeah, but there's a, you can go sit by by somebody's grandma that can teach you a whole lot more than you learned in those last 30 years. But you got to know that you got to know that you have to reject all of the things that you have been taught and the power that you have accumulated over the 30 years of your life so that you can be teachable in that moment. It's an ongoing thing, even outside the relationships that you're building. It's an everyday process when you're by yourself, relearning and teaching yourself how to decenter whiteness in that way. So one of the things that um, even when I said um, immersed in the culture, the reason why I hesitated initially was because I'm not sure that I used to know there was a different culture, right? And part of that is the decentering that happens when you realize that you're not the normative, right? Like you are not the norm for anything, for church, for government, for thought, for what have you. And so the decentering comes when you realize you need to open the room wider. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes some sense. So what was coming up for me as you were talking, Ricks, is back to my initial point about choosing a situation that makes you uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. That that's an indicator of, yeah. That's an indicator of the place that you are positioning yourself. And so like even in the language that you're using right now about opening the room wider, that still places white folks in the position of acting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think to Sam's point, it's so hard for white folks to imagine what it means to just be. And they always want to do something to try to fix it and make it better or become a better ally or be seen as an ally. And really what this is, it's about an isness. 
And so, I mean, the story that came to mind because I'm a preacher is in Luke chapter 14. And, and I'm just going to read it because I came to preach today. This is the word of pod. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he or she or they may say to you, friend, move up a little higher then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with Mm. you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The reason that I read that story is because if you are trying to become an advocate, your instinct as a white person is going to be to try to position yourself in the place of honor. What can I do? How can I position myself Mm. at a place where I'm equal with you, where there's a reciprocal exchange, not taking into account that there's a historical precedent for us being unequal and you always coming in in power and your white embodied self and your white female tears or whatever else you deploy will position you at a place of honor psychologically in your own mind and perhaps in the mind of those who are around you. What does it mean to put yourself in the place where you're scared? In the lowest seat. In the lowest seat. Because Katie didn't volunteer to surround herself by black folks. She didn't choose that. She wouldn't have. I won't tell the story about how she got there. She was terrified. That's <laughs> not terrifying. I'll have a black gathering and Katie will be the only white person. And then new black folks will be like, who is this white woman? I'm like, okay, it's cool. Mm-hmm. Katie is cool, y'all. And that's me saying, come on up a little higher. And so, Brandon, what I hear in that and what I've what I've written about and talked about before is the power of imitation. Is that what that, that's what that scripture talks about. That's it. White people, you need to be invited. And the challenge with white people is when you're not invited, you can't stand it. <laughs> it does something to you because you've got all of this knowledge and all of this information. And how can I be an advocate? How can I be an ally? And I want to do it, but I don't want to be too abrasive. And I don't want to be, well, sit your ass down until somebody invites you. Ah, uh-huh. yep. And then if they invite you to sweep the floor, get a broom and sweep the damn floor mm-hmm. and do that as if you were Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel. Well, you all came to preach. I appreciate what how you said that, Brandon, because I think we got somewhere like a different place. I imagine that room opening up as a passive thing on on my part rather than something that I can actively do. But I'm glad you said it like that because I think it helped me understand that. No, that's good. That's just what I notice. But even in that exchange, right? Like you had an intention with the words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there would be an intention associated with that action. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So if, if you're a white woman in a space and you said, let's open up the room, let's figure out how to give the room some breath, people are going to hear that differently, perhaps, than what you intend. Yeah. It's that sort of positioning that you have to do. I mean, Yolanda Norton talked about this on one of our earliest episodes about placing black women at the center of the spaces we call sacred. And the reason this is the invitation is because this is what Holy Shit Pod is about. We don't name it this way explicitly, but what happens on a weekly basis is we sit together in a room, be that virtual or in person, and three folks who should not be sitting together have an honest conversation based on the longstanding relationships that we have. Katie and I should not be friends. Sam and I aren't friends, but we definitely shouldn't be friends and doing a podcast together because Sam is a straight black man and I'm a gay black man. And there's so much socialization that gets in our way and tries to make it to the point where we hate one another or we view one another as enemies because he should hate my sexuality based on what he's been taught in his religious circles, based on what I've been taught in my religious circles. And so we sit here every week and we invite you all into a conversation 
where you can do some of your own homework. So Elizabeth, I'm grateful that you felt safe enough and brave enough to show up here and provide us with this question. But the last thing I'm going to say to you, Elizabeth, is I I told you I was going to coach you a little bit. So you did a classic passive aggressive white woman communication at the end of your audio clip. I'm not even mad about it because I'm so used to it. Because what you tried to do, Elizabeth, in black circles, we would have called that throwing shade. What you said was you've been posting these episodes on Monday afternoons and not on Monday mornings. I appreciate <laughs> being able to listen to half of it on my drive in to work and the other half on my drive out. She sure did. You said it real nice and white woman. Like that was classic passive aggressive white woman coming out. Okay, <laughs> you was throwing shade. Elizabeth, you are not the only person who has said that we're trying to find a good rhythm for publishing episodes. And what we have found is that the vast majority of you aren't listening until later on on a Monday afternoon or evening. And so to give our editing and production teams a little bit more time to tighten things up so that you can have a clear, crisp, clean episode, we are going to start defaulting to Monday afternoons and evenings being the time that we publish the episode. And so I invite you to consider a new rhythm where you begin the episode on a Monday evening and then you conclude it on a Tuesday morning. Morning, right? Because then you end your Tuesday with the invitation for the day. Ashe and amen. Let me tell you something. Elizabeth, Brandon is a master BSer. What he really was trying to say is he don't have that shit ready on time. <laughs> and because it ain't ready on time, you just need to be a little patient and have a little grace for a nigga. You know what I'm saying? Well, don't say, don't, you know, don't the word. That's mm-hmm. not for you, but that's for him. But uh, but that's what he meant. I feel like we just had the little key and peel. Barack Obama angriest translate a moment not that I'm angry but I'm just saying that's what that felt like but I didn't take no lies thanks for the question Elizabeth and that brings us to the end of another service here at the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for all the saints and the ain'ts we are grateful to each and every one of you who submitted a question thank you Nicole thank you Elisa thank you Preston thank you Elizabeth thank you Piper for the shout out and thank you to everyone whose questions could not be included y'all asked some really good questions and you can listen for those questions in the episodes that are to come we're also going to share a couple of emails in the next few episodes we had a great email from Barato Mamadi from Cape Town, South Africa. We're going to read that next week. Thank you so much for making this 25th episode so special. Listen, if you couldn't tell by today, one of the things that we love most about podcasting is connecting with you, our listeners. So go ahead and send an email to holyshit at theolabmedia.com. Even if you've already sent one before, send another one. Go on over to theolabmedia.com and click the purple hexagon in the bottom right-hand corner, ask a question, submit a discussion topic, or just say hello. And if you happen to be listening in Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app that allows you to submit ratings, please leave a five-star rating and review. And if you're feeling generous, head on over to patreon.com slash theolabmedia and leave us a little love offering in the basket as it's passed. All right, people of pod, we'll be back next week, same time, same place. Until then... Peace.